Well, I want you to imagine, I want you to suppose for a moment this morning that you as a family <clears throat> received an invitation from a dear family friend. You found out that their daughter is getting married in October. Several months ago, you received this invitation and you've known this girl for a long time. Been a family friend. You've seen her grow up. You remember when she was this tall. She babysat for your children. She went off to college. Met a boy. Getting married. And you're anxiously waiting for that day. You're looking forward to attending your wedding. And it's coming up very soon. But a couple days ago, you also, I want you to imagine this, heard about an awful car accident that took place just outside of town. A drunk driver slammed his car and driven, slammed his car into a car driven by a young man at the age of 20, killing him instantly. Now you knew this young boy, this young man of 20, he was a close family friend. He'd grown up in the neighborhoods. His kids had played with your children. He, you had attended some of his ball games, and in fact, he'd went off to college, and when he came back, he made specific effort to come to you to tell you about how college was treating him and the things that he was learning about his college experience. Now, you find out that this funeral for this young man is scheduled at the exact same time as your family friends, this, this girl. She had her wedding the same day, same time. I mean, it couldn't have been even more providential, right? Three o'clock in the afternoon, Saturday, August, October 9th, whenever Saturday is. And you got a choice. What are you going to attend? Are you going to attend the wedding? Or are you going to attend the funeral? The events are a three-hour drive from each other, so you can't attend both of them. You need to choose. And certainly, I think there are many factors going into your decision, right? You're going to say, okay, which of these families were you closer to? How strong are your relationships there? What about are your children? Maybe your children are in the wedding. Maybe a, a bridesmaid or maybe a you know, flower girl or ring bearer. Or, or maybe the circumstances are that you spent many hours with this young man's parents just comforting them in a time of grief and sorrow. And you know, thinking through, well, maybe there'll be a reception later for the bride or... You know, maybe this young man attending your church. All these things, listen, are just swirling in the air. But suppose, for the sake of argument, you considered all these things to be exactly equal. Which event would you attend? The wedding or the funeral? How about this? Which one do you want to attend? Let's put it that way. I know in my flesh, the choice is easy. I'm attending the wedding in my flesh. I mean, I prefer to see smiles... And to hear laughs and to think of a man and woman spending the rest of their lives together in marital bliss. That's where I prefer to be. And yet, listen to Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2. It says, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. It's better to go to a house of mourning than it is to a house of feasting. In other words, it's better to go to a funeral it's better for our souls than a wedding is. Why? Because a funeral makes us think about the brevity of our lives. It makes us deal with the eternal realities beyond the grave. Well, this morning, we're going to a funeral. We're going to a funeral this morning. 
It's going to be the funeral of Jesus. We're going to look at what took place between the death of Jesus and the placing of His body in the tomb. In recent weeks, we've looked at the trial of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the death of Christ. This morning, we're moving our attention to Matthew 27 to His burial. My message this morning is simply entitled, The Burial of Christ. At first, you might think this topic to be a bit trivial. I mean, once he died, his life was over. There's nothing left for him to do. In fact, he himself declared just before he yielded up his spirit, it is finished. Right? It means I have no more work to be done. It is done. It is over. The events surrounding his burial at first might seem inconsequential. And yet, we need to understand the biblical writers didn't waste words. If Matthew records for us the details surrounding his burial, then the event must have some importance to us in our lives. Paul thought it was important. When he summarized the message of the Gospel of Christ, listen to what he said, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried. There it is. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas and to the twelve and to more than 500 brethren at one time, to James, to all the apostles. Last of all, He appeared to me. There are four elements particularly that Paul points out as crucial to the Gospel message. Right? That Christ died, He was buried, He was raised, and then He appeared. And each of these have their own significance. Right? We know the death of Christ, why that's important. I mean, His death was the means of our salvation. His death was a sacrifice paid for our sins. That's easy. We know the resurrection of Christ, why that's important. I mean, His raising from the dead demonstrates He'd conquered death. Having been raised from the dead, Christ is never to die again. Death is no longer master over Him. In His resurrection from the dead, that is what God used to declare that Jesus Christ was a judge of the world. And of course, the appearances of Christ are important. They furnish proof that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. It's not some fairy tale. No, our faith is based in space-time history. Jesus rose bodily and appeared to people and people saw it with their eyes. They became eyewitnesses of it. But what about this burial of Christ? I mean, how is that important? Well, I thought about a couple of reasons why it's important and perhaps the greatest is that it demonstrates that Jesus really died. I mean, those who seek to deny the resurrection of Christ on the grounds that He never really died, the theory is called the swoon theory. How many of you heard this before? It means that Jesus swooned. I didn't know what that word meant. I've just heard about this theory. I didn't know what swooning meant. But basically, it means to lose consciousness. And these people who believe in the swoon theory think that He just appeared to be dead, that He never really died. Therefore, as Jesus raised from the dead, they say, quote-unquote, it wasn't from a state of death, but from a state of unconsciousness. But that can't be, because as all the Gospel writers show, Jesus taken down from the cross, prepared for burial, and then placed in a tomb. The process may have taken upwards of even an hour. And within a time of about an hour, you can clearly know whether a corpse has any life in it at all. It would have started to grow cold. It would have started to stiffen. Blood would have fallen down to the bottom part of the body. You don't put a swooned body in a grave. Maybe that's one of the most important reasons why the burial is important. Maybe another reason is this. 
is because the details surrounding his burial give further proof to the fact that Christ was indeed the Messiah. These circumstances were prophesied to take place. Pilate again declares of his innocence. The manner of his burial, and we'll see the details of this, helped prove that he really did raise from the dead. But yet, there's another reason why this passage is of importance to us. On two other occasions, Paul mentions how it's in our baptism we've been buried with Christ. In other words, it's in our dying to sin through our faith in Christ expressed in our baptism, we've participated in some mysterious way with the burial of Christ. In fact, that's what it says in Romans chapter 6. It says you've been buried with Him in baptism. And so you just ask the question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Well, my sins were. Were you there when they nailed Him to the cross? Well, Colossians says that my sins were nailed to the cross. Were you there when they put Him in the tomb? Well, according to Romans 6, we were buried with Him in our baptism. With Him. I'll elaborate on that later at the end of my message this morning. But it's important. The burial of Christ is. And so, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 27. It is indeed a somber and sober text. It causes us to think about the body of Jesus in the tomb. And to be perfectly honest with you, I'd rather not be preaching from this text today. I'd rather be preaching about the resurrection. And that will come in two weeks. Next week, Steve Belanger is preaching. A dozen of us men will be up in Minneapolis, Minnesota at the conference hosted by Bethlehem Baptist Church, Suffering in the Sovereignty of God, hosted by John Piper. You can pray for us as we go. But not next week, but the week after that, be preaching about the resurrection. And I look forward to that. I look forward to, to preaching about the hope that we have because of the resurrection. I look forward to, to preaching about the joys that come into a soul when the soul realizes that Jesus has conquered death, that we don't have to fear death anymore, but Jesus has conquered it and risen from the dead. I look forward to speaking about the emotions that were welling up in the hearts of these ladies who went to the tomb as they realized the body of the one who they're seeking to anoint isn't there, but He was raised. And I'd rather get to tell you, to, to, to tell you, to explain to you, to push to you the, the joy we feel in the resurrection rather than the sorrow as is the case today. But, as is the benefits of expositional teaching, we'll be at a funeral today. So, I was thinking through my message. You know, there's not great humor in my message this morning. It's very sober. It's very sobering. In fact, it is appropriate. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper after my message this morning. How appropriate it is for us to really reflect upon the death and burial of Christ as we think then about taking the bread and the cup in celebration of what Christ has done for our souls the grave is necessary before we get to the resurrection. I mean, if Jesus is going to be raised from the dead, He first has to be dead. And if He is dead, He's going to be buried. And though our text is in a minor key this morning, let us not forget that this is the best place to be in the house of mourning. That's where we are. With this long introduction, I begin reading the passage in verse 55. And many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him. Among whom was Mary Magdalene, along with Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. 
And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given over to him, and Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure. Until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. Along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. I have three points this morning. They're right there in your outline in your bulletin. Minus a word that you might pay attention to me. My first point is this. His grave was easily identified. His grave was easily identified. I believe this is the point of verses 55 through 61. Right? We pick up verse 55, some women. In fact, not just some. We, we pick up many women were there looking on from a distance. Let us not forget church family that women played an integral role in the life and ministry of Jesus. For them to travel here with Jesus, look look here, it says that they'd followed, these many women had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to Him. That is no small task. Galilee is a three or four days journey north of Jerusalem. Seventy miles north of Jerusalem to come down With them, we don't know if these women came with or without their husbands. Maybe they came in a large caravan. Many women came with Jesus. And we read here in verse 55 that they were ministering to Him. I think this was indicative of their life. It means they were serving Jesus. They were helping Jesus. In many ways, I think this was done throughout their lives. They could have helped Him with words of encouragement. They could have helped Him physically, providing Him with a meal. They could have helped Him with clothes or with physical things or with food or just ministered to him and helped him. Maybe they could have arranged things on the side, helped prepare things for Jesus. In Luke 8, there's a very interesting passage. The first three verses, we hear of many women who supported Jesus financially. I mean, think about the ministry of Jesus. During the days of His ministry, we read nothing of Him working to support Himself. As a boy, He was raised in a carpenter's home. He certainly learned the trade of His father, Certainly could have made a living being a carpenter. Perhaps he did until he reached the age of 30. But once he reached the age of 30, he stopped and began ministering to him. And ministering, and throughout his ministry, there's no mention of Jesus taking time to, to build a piece of furniture, or to build a house, or to big, build some public square. We, we don't know of anything like that. In fact, our presumption is that Jesus didn't. He was dependent upon the funds of others. And do you know who probably supported him more than anybody else? I think rich, wealthy women majorly funded his ministry. The faithful ministry of these women continued even right up until the point of his death. These women are to be commended. 
We'd be encouraged about the ministry that women can have. Look here, even right here. They were following, they were, they were looking on from a distance, ministering to him. Why they kept away from Jesus at this time, I'm not quite sure. We don't really know. In John's Gospel, there was a time when some of these women were standing at the foot of the cross listening to Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus said to, to Mary, his mother, you know, behold your son, to John, behold your mother? They're close enough to be able to see that. At this point, though, they're distanced from it. We don't know why. Maybe it was the moment of death. And these women were ushered away to protect them from the horror of the final moments. Maybe the soldiers pushed them away so that they might have room as they break the legs of the thieves. They maybe take bodies down from the cross. They want to maybe have some working room and, and cleared the whole uh, arrangement out. Perhaps that was why. We don't know. But here's what we do know. Even from a distance, they were ministering to Him. If the distance wasn't too far, perhaps they were shouting words of encouragement to Jesus. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we will be faithful to you. We know you're innocent, Jesus. And as Jesus heard those words, perhaps he was encouraged even more to, to continue on through the sufferings of the cross. Maybe if they were too far away to be heard, even their visible sight would have been an encouragement to him. I think about a son or a daughter who's playing in a ball game or playing in an orchestra and looks to the crowd and sees mom and dad, even if they don't hear mom and dad, to see mom and dad is an encouragement to play harder, to play better, to concentrate more. And so also Jesus with His faithful followers there. All was not lost. He still had women who were faithfully following Him. Matthew points out three women by name. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary, the sons of Zebedee. These women are all different from each other and yet so much alike. Mary Magdalene had been demon-possessed by seven demons until Jesus came and cast the demons out of her. And from that, we can think about what does demon possession mean? You're possessed by seven demons. Your, your lifestyle is certainly sinful, involved in sinful things. Some even think that this Mary Magdalene was the woman forgiven of her sins in John chapter 8. Caught in adultery. Perhaps. We don't know. We know she was probably some sinner. And yet, this act of kindness that Jesus did to her as He cast out these seven demons, right? Compelled her then to love and to follow Christ. His kindness to her was something she'd never forget. She was faithful to Jesus right up to the end. Or we have Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, who also, by the way, is the mother of Jesus. Her experience was a lot different than Mary Magdalene. She'd given birth to Jesus, seen Him grow into a young man. Her motherly instincts would never have allowed her to desert Jesus on that day. She was going to be there because of motherly instincts. right? Mary Magdalene was going to be there because of sins forgiven. And the mother of the sons of Zebedee was there probably because Jesus was a great friend and a great mentor towards her sons. Her sons were prominent among the disciples and she had had so much comfort and friendship with Jesus that she even asked that her boys have a special place in the kingdom. And the friendship was so strong that though Jesus said, no, it's not for me to request, she didn't alienate from her. She continued to draw close to Jesus and was a friend. So we have a friend, a mother, and a forgiven sinner. All different Mary Magdalene's story passed. Mary had a perfect son who obeyed her in everything. Mary, the sons, of Ze- the sons of Zebedee, raised two impetuous sons who were named Sons of Thunder. 
Imagine raising those strong-willed boys in your family. And yet, though different experiences, they all remain faithful to Jesus until the end. And I just say, this ought to be the thing that unites as a church. It's, it's not because we're all from the same social status or that we're all interested in the same things or that we're all in the same station of life. What unites us as a church ought to be our love to Christ, our undying devotion to Him because He's forgiven us all of our sins. That's what united these women. Their devotion to Christ. But here's my question for you. Why does Matthew even mention these women here? I told you a couple weeks ago, it's always a good question to ask in Bible study. If these verses were out and not in the Bible, what would we lack? Well, I think that what we would lack is the continuity of these women who would be the primary witnesses of the resurrection. I mean, we see two of them in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Look there. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Now, one of the things that we can be sure of is that they got the right grave. Because back in Matthew 27, verse 61, we see Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. These women were in eyeshot of Jesus, the body of Jesus, from the time that He died to the time He's taken down for the cross, prepared for burial, carried over to the tomb, placed in the tomb, and we find them sitting there opposite the grave. They didn't leave sight of Jesus. There's no switching of bodies. There's no mistaking the grave. They saw Jesus come down. They saw Him carried to the graveyard. They saw where He was placed in the tomb. And they saw this large stone rolled in front of the tomb and sealed shut. When the women returned to anoint the body of Jesus, they went to the right tomb. And that's my point. His grave was easily identified. I think this is Matthew's point in this. Those who attempt to deny the resurrection will sometimes use the theory that the women went to the wrong tomb. They claim that in their grief, they didn't quite remember where it was that the body of Jesus was. And and so longing to believe in the resurrection of Christ when they came to this tomb and they found it empty... They say, oh, Jesus risen from the dead. You know, even though Jesus' tomb was over here. But that, listen, that's impossible. Because the disciples knew full well where the body, these women knew full well where the body of Jesus was carried. They sat down opposite of the tomb. Right? They were sitting. Probably just grieving and contemplating what just took place. Here, their Lord, their Messiah, their Savior, Dead. And they don't fully understand the implications of Messiah. They're sorrowful at this point. Sitting there. Maybe for a few hours. We don't even know how long they were there. They would have recognized this tomb. I mean, especially as it was a rolling stone tomb. I mean, once the body of Jesus was placed in the tomb, we read in verse 60 that Joseph of Arimathea rolled a stone, rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. This tomb, by the way, may well have been the only rolling stone tomb in the cemetery. It may have been the only rolling stone tomb in Jerusalem. No, it couldn't be. There was one more. Throughout our excavations, we've only found a handful of rolling stone tombs discovered in all Israel. Graves and tombs have been discovered all over. In fact, that's how we know so much about the people of Israel because we go to their tombs to see what they were buried with. Right? We find other bodies where they were killed in some particular ways. How is it? But 
Only a handful of them have been rolling stone tombs. This week I found three such tombs in my study. But I remember hearing of a fourth, but I just couldn't find it this past week. All of them date within a hundred years of Christ. They never used rolling stone tombs before. They never used rolling stone tombs after Christ. All of them have a large round stone, four to six feet tall. You know, think about the floor. Four to six feet tall. About a foot, foot and a half, two feet thick. That they take then and roll like a cylinder. I always picture the rolling stone tomb like this big rock and boulder that goes kump. But, but this was a, a cylindrical disc, kind of thick, but, but uh, you know, more like a, a quarter or something, you know, shaped like that. So they roll and the track was, was downhill a little bit, so it would roll and then kunk, set in place. And then when they pulled it up again, they'd need several men to really, you know, pull this big stone rock up. But of the handful of tombs that have been discovered in Israel, none of them could be the tomb in which they placed Jesus in. Some of them are miles away from Jerusalem. And the one discovered near Jerusalem has been identified to be used by the family of Herod. So we don't know where the tomb of Jesus was, but a tomb that was as rare as that one was would have been easily identified by these women. And they knew where the tomb was. It was easily identified. Second point. Not only was his grave easily identified, his grave was previously prophesied. More than 700 years before the burial of Christ, the prophet Isaiah prophesied of the burial of the Messiah. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 9. Isaiah wrote, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. I find it amazing here how exactly these words of Isaiah 53 are fulfilled. His grave was assigned with wicked men. We don't know exactly what happened to the bodies of these other men who were crucified with Jesus. Roman custom was to leave the bodies on the cross, to let them decay for everyone to see, to let the vultures have slim pickings, or healthy pickings or whatever, to eat their bodies off for all to see. Had they actually been taken down from the cross and buried, it's a pretty safe bet that they wouldn't have been buried in an honorable place. You don't bury convicted killers in Arlington Cemetery. You bury them in dishonorable places. As Jesus died the death of a criminal, His body was headed for the consequence of a criminal. His body was headed to either sit and rot upon the cross or to be cast away and buried in a tomb with the despicable of civilization. And yet, a rich man stepped in to save the body of Jesus from this injustice, just as Isaiah had prophesied, right? He was with a rich man in his death. This man's name was Joseph. As it says there in verse 53, we know little about this man. He's from Arimathea. We don't know where Arimathea is. Probably 20 miles northwest of of Jerusalem is probably our best guess. We're not exactly sure, but we know he was a rich man. That's what verse 57 says. Might... Best explain why he built a rolling stone, rolling stone tomb for himself. Right? He had the means to fund such an extravagant grave. He was an influential man. I mean, think about it. He was able to get an appointment with the governor of the land in the evening to get his request. I don't think that there are any of us among us who can call up Rob, Rob Blagojevich and just say, Hey, Robbie, how you doing? Yeah, i got something I want to talk to you about. How about, you know, 3 o'clock today? Is that okay? Can I stop by? I don't think any of us would have 
opportunity to do like that. But here was a rich, influential man who made his request to Pilate, the governor of the land. And this request was granted to him. Luke tells us that he was a good and righteous man. He probably followed the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Being a good husband, loving his wife, being a good father, shepherding his children well, having a good reputation with those who are in the community as one who did right. We know he was a member of the Sanhedrin also. Remember, that's the, the group of the 70 elders who ruled over the Jewish district of everything that took place. And sadly then, he was one of the panel of the 70 men who had sentenced Jesus to death. But Luke tells us that he didn't consent to their plan. He either cast a dissenting vote or remained silent during this time. We don't know exactly what. Because John tells us that he had become a disciple of Jesus. He was a member of the Sanhedrin becoming a disciple of Jesus. He was a follower of Christ, but sadly he wasn't doing so out in the open. John calls him a, a secret follower who feared the Jews. They were throwing people out of the synagogue for claiming to be a follower of Jesus. And so he kept his discipleship secret. Should he openly confess he was a follower of Christ, he would have been shamed. He would have been stripped of his honor and authority. And so he kept silent. And yet, on this day, praise the Lord, his silence ended. As will all silence of all secret disciples at some point in their lives. You can't follow Jesus being a secret disciple for any period of time, very long, without it eventually coming out. We don't know how long Joseph of Arimathea did this, but it certainly was less than three years. He came to Pilate, exposed himself, came out, asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate, according to Mark, wondered whether the body of whether Jesus was dead yet. Right? It came as a surprise because Jesus had died so quickly. Remember, it was six hours only that He was upon the cross. But when... Pilate found out that he was dead. He granted Joseph's request. And listen, I'm telling you, this was unusual for him to have granted such a request. D.A. Carson points out in his commentary. It's excellent. He says this, Permission to take a body down from the cross was usually granted to friends and relatives of the deceased who made application, but never in the case of high treason which was obviously the case of Jesus claiming to be king of the Jews over and against Caesar. So I ask you, why did Pilate make the exception? I believe it's because he knew of the innocence of Christ. I mean, during the trial of Jesus, we read earlier, there are several times in which Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. In verse 23, he says, why? What evil has he done? Pilate knew him to be a righteous man. His wife knew him to be a righteous man. <clears throat> And though accused of high treason, Pilate knew it wasn't the case. He didn't deserve to have his body dishonored with the other two criminals. So Jesus was taken away the body from these two criminals. And I believe that granting the body to Joseph of Arimathea was a pronouncement to how Jesus was an innocent man. Isn't that interesting? Just time and time we've gone through here the story of Matthew. How many times it is that he's innocent? He's innocent. He's innocent at the trial of the Jews, right? He's innocent in the trial of the Romans. He's innocent by others. And here it is. Even after he's dead, he's declared to be innocent as well. It's just a theme that runs through this passage. And in fact, that's exactly what Isaiah prophesied. Listen again. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. I say, why? Because 
This is why he was with a rich man in his death, because he'd done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. It's the righteousness of Christ that allowed him to be with this rich man in his death. It's because he'd done no violence, because no deceit had come from his mouth, that Pilate was willing to give over the body of Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea. Fulfilled exactly. We read in verses 59 to 60 that Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Now, Joseph at this point was under a bit of time constraint. He had to get the body of Jesus down from the cross, cleaned up, and into the tomb before the sun went down an hour or two away. Once the sun was down, it was the Shabbat, the Sabbath celebration began, and no work was permitted on the Sabbath. And given the amount of work to be done, the time needed accomplishment, there's no way he could have done it by himself. He would have needed help. And the Gospel of John says that a man came to help him. Do you know who that man was? Nicodemus. Right. I heard that rumbling over here. Nicodemus came to help him. He was also a council member who had first come to Jesus by night. Maybe he too was a secret disciple of Jesus who came out at this time as well. We can only assume that Nicodemus and Joseph were allies on the Sanhedrin who saw through the political facade of the Sanhedrin, but were too few in number to do anything. But anyway, these two men helped prepare the body of Jesus. When Nicodemus came to help, he brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to help initially anoint the body of Jesus. 75 pounds, that's a lot. One of my tasks and duties at our house that I dread the most is uh, salt for our, our water softener. And I get 40-pound bags, and it takes every bit. You know, put one in this hand, one in this hand, and walk them down the stairs. I don't like that job. But it's heavy. And he would have brought 75 pounds of aloes and myrrh to help anoint the body of Jesus. And when you think about the weight that they've got to take these 75 pounds of initial spices and the body of Jesus. Jesus weighed, what, 150, 200 pounds, 175, who knows? That's a lot. I mean, it took much to carry. I wouldn't be surprised if there were more helping in this burial process. I bet the women gave hearty hand here. After all, it's coming in Matthew 28. Right? When they come to the tomb, they're coming to anoint the body, more to help prepare the body. And so the women who were about that were probably there helping at the moment. And after the preparations, the body of Jesus was set in the tomb. Joseph had originally intended this tomb for himself. It was his own tomb. As it says right there in verse 59, maybe Joseph was advanced in years been thinking about his upcoming death and had commissioned this tomb for himself and for his family. Being a rich man, it probably consisted, as many tombs do there, of a, an initial chamber. It's called an antechamber. With uh, places, a couple places, maybe to lay a dead body to let it decompose. And, and maybe some shelves beyond. And maybe even another room, as some graves have. Uh, another room back where you put a, the ossuaries, right? The bone boxes. Right? Longer than the femur, wider than the skull, and about this higher so you fit all the bones. So once the body decays, take the bones, put them in there, and that's the remains of you know, Aunt Margaret. You know? And you put Aunt Margaret up on the, the shelf back there in your tomb. And that's what they, they buried people back then. That was the tomb. It was like Joseph had commissioned to be made. Probably fairly sizable. Sizable enough for probably his extended family to be buried there. It's a marvelous fact that even before Jesus died, the Lord knew of this rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, stirred his heart to start preparing the tomb of Jesus months beforehand. You don't just hewn out a tomb that big. I mean, you're going through 
through solid bedrock, chip, 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 chipping away, it takes a long time to build a room that big. It would have been months in advance. Christ was, God was preparing for the grave of Jesus. As my point says, his grave was previously prophesied. Third and finally, his grave was deliberately supervised. I got the rhymes in there. Deliberately supervised. I wanted point three to say made secure, but that didn't fit. So you can think about made secure, deliberately supervised. 62 through 66. Now on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir... We remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I'm going to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. And the last deception be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go. Make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. Along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. The Jewish leaders in these verses demonstrate their fickleness. Less than 24 hours before, they'd ridiculed Jesus, who said, I'm able to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. And yet, they take those very same words and interpret them correctly to say, Jesus said that He would rise again after three days. Though they didn't believe Jesus, they feared the possibility of some great deception taking place. They conceived the possibility of disciples coming in to steal the body of Jesus by night and making the prediction of Jesus come true. And they thought that that event would cause a greater tumult in the Jewish community as the name of Jesus wouldn't ever die down. And they were right in that. A resurrection of Christ would cause great tumult in the Jewish community. Listen, but they, they totally underestimated, overestimated the disciples. They had no idea of how weak and how feeble and how scared these disciples were at this moment. I mean, if they knew that they were locked up in an inner room, an upper room to keep away from the Jews, lest they too also be crucified, Jewish leaders would never have felt this necessary. Yet another proof of the resurrection. The disciples weren't about to steal the body, but we'll get to that in a few weeks. Yet these religious leaders made sure they did everything possible to snuff out the name of Jesus from the pages of human history. They wanted to make the name of Jesus like the name of Theudas. How many of you heard of Theudas? His name's only in the Bible. Acts 5, verse 36. He rose up claiming to be somebody and obtained a following of 400 men. But once he was killed, all who followed him were dispersed and considered to be nothing. That's what they wanted to have happen to Jesus, right? So that we say, who knows the name of Jesus? Nobody raises their hand. They want to snuff his name out. Or they want his name to be like Judas of Galilee. Have you heard of his name before? He's also in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. He drew away some people after him, but when he perished, all those who followed him were scattered and his name forgotten. How about the name Bar Kokhba? Have you heard that name? He came about 100, 200 years after Christ to claim to be Messiah, calling himself the Star of Jacob. And yet after his death, his following quickly disappeared. So we don't even know the names of Judas of Galilee, Bar Kokhba, or Theudas today. They're only recorded for us in the annals of history. And only those who know history know these names. The religious leaders wanted to do the same for Jesus. And their plan was to give physical evidence of the fact that Jesus, the body of Jesus didn't raise from the dead. 
Right? Show and tell. Hey, all Jerusalem, here's Jesus. Here's your liar. Here's your deceiver. There's his body. There he lay. Can we go into business? You guys look at us now for authority. That's what they wanted. It was a plan to station a few guards at the tomb for a few days. To do so, they wanted a pilot to station some Roman soldiers at the tomb. And that's why they came and explained their situation to him in verses 63 and 64. And I'm sure at this point when they made the request, Pilate probably chuckled at their request. I mean, hours earlier they stood before him demanding that Jesus was this evil man. And yet here, even after Jesus died, they're scared of him. Pilate was totally convinced of Jesus' innocence. Pilate only gave him over because of the envy of the crowd. The riot was taking place, and now they're frightened of him, even when he's dead. And so Pilate gave his permission. Okay, <laughs> you can make the grave secure, but he refused to allocate any Roman resources to it because Pilate understood the absurdity of guarding a dead man. You don't need to guard a dead man. He said in verse 65, You have a guard. Go make it secure as you know how. And now remember, the Jews had a measure of self-rule. This means they had their own policemen, their own military personnel. They operated underneath the Romans. Right? The Romans, just like in Israel today, it's the Israeli army that governs everything, but the Palestinians have their own police in the occupied territories. Same thing there. The Jewish people would have had their own policemen. And that's who was placed in front of this. A few guards set in the tomb, seals set on the tomb. It's basically said, hey, no one can open this tomb except by governmental authority. When Mary and Mary came to the tomb, they would have needed some governmental authority to get to the body. They probably got there, talked to the soldiers, said, hey, can you go maybe talk to uh, Pilate? Or go talk to Pilate. It's okay. Get a decree back. Okay, now we can break the seal because we have this authority. That's what would have needed to be take place because of the seal. But their plans were thwarted. Rather than seeing the name of Jesus die away into obscurity, he's probably become, I would contend, the most famous historical figure that has ever stepped foot on the planet Earth. I, I believe the majority of people today have heard the name Jesus and could begin to tell you something about Him. A teacher, prophet. Now, certainly there are lands where people have never heard the name of Christ. Some of those are in Nepal. We want to help get to those people so they hear the name of Jesus. And certainly many people here of Jesus have a wrong understanding of who He was. Certainly a lot of people know so teeny, teeny little about Jesus, but at least they've heard the name. Well, we haven't even heard these names of Bar Kokhba and Judas of Galilee. Think about the irony of these actions. I, mean, I, I, just, I just find this incredible. Rather than seeing the name of Jesus die, rather than preventing the resurrection, they actually give further proof to the resurrection because the guard made it impossible for the disciples to come and steal away the body. The only explanation is that Jesus rose from the dead of His own power and His own accord. The guards protected the tomb. The stealing of His body was impossible. And throughout history, God's often worked this way. Remember the story of Esther? Haman made gallows 75 feet tall to kill Mordecai, and yet who was killed in the gallows? Haman was. I think of the story of Celsus. This is one of my favorite stories from church history. He was a great enemy of the cause of Christ. He hated Christians, hated Christ. He lived in 150 A.D. He wrote a diatribe against Christianity 
entitled A True Discourse, in which he attempted to disprove Christianity. And it was lengthy, and he's writing all against Christianity, right? Writing all about how bad it is, and bad it is, bad it is. But you know, here's the ironic thing, is that he wrote, because he wrote so early in time, his writings have become one of the best sources to demonstrate the antiquity and authenticity of apostolic writings. Because he's quoting Scripture and he's talking about the things that happened and took place in 150 A.D. And that is very early. And so, he became one of our best witnesses and thereby providing strong evidence for the validity of our faith that he was trying to destroy. I love the story of Celsus. I love the story of Voltaire, the 18th century French atheist. He thought his pen would be able to destroy Christianity. One occasion, he held up the Bible and said that this book would soon be forgotten and eliminated. In his death, maybe you've heard the story before. He died in agony, abandoned by God and man, was his own testimony of his mouth. Twenty years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society purchased his house, turned it into a major distribution hub for the very Bible he tried to press into extinction. That's how God works. It still happens. In recent days, we've been involved in helping a church in Nepal. And... Um, we helped them purchase a land parcel. By the way, Steve Belandre has put up a, a nice poster right there in back of pictures we received. They purchased the land uh, about a week and a half ago. And um, it's how God works. Because the owner of the property had originally intended to put a Hindu temple on it. And now the Lord in His providence will put a church on that property instead. It's how God works. The wicked may attempt to thwart God and to deny him, but it simply is not going to happen. And by these Pharisees and Sadducees, religious leaders, seeking to prevent a false resurrection from taking place through the theft of his body, they actually helped to prove the resurrection. Praise be to God, right? In fact, that's what this text is all about this morning. His grave was easily identified in that the, the women went to the right tomb. His grave was previously prophesied, right? The death and burial of Jesus was exactly according to plan. And his grave was deliberately supervised in the fact that in them supervising the tomb gave an indirect proof of the actual resurrection from the dead. The disciples didn't come to take away Jesus' body as the Pharisees feared. Indeed, God raised his body from the dead. And so God accomplished his purpose despite the plans of man. That's the message of his burial. Now I want to really press us into the application of his burial. Turn over to Romans chapter 6. I promised that we would look <clears throat> here at this chapter, this passage. We transition here to Lord's Supper. I'm going to be brief on my comments because these words really are very, very mysterious for us. They're hard for us to understand how it is. Chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, Paul wrote it in light of those who say, oh, we're saved totally by grace. God predestined us before the foundation of the world. We have nothing to do with our salvation. He gives us grace, gives us faith. And I can just live whatever I want. He said, no, 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 on the contrary, that's not the way it works. Grace teaches you to obey. It teaches you to live righteously. What shall we say then? Chapter 6, verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? He said, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Right. Talking about a Christian. If you have died to sin, how will you still live it? And how is it you've died to sin? 
You've died to sin in the death of Christ. Right? Look what it says here in verse 3. Or do you not know, I mean, it's something we all should know, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death. There's lots of debate about whether this baptism is water baptism, spirit baptism. I would contend that probably the two come together. Remember, I preached a sermon recently, a couple months ago, on baptism and how water baptism was so synonymous with conversion in the early days that I think for them to say, oh, water baptism, spirit baptism, we're talking about, they're, they're like the same thing almost, right together. And so I think he's just talking about our water baptism, he's talking about our spiritual baptism, he's talking about our conversion. You've been converted into Christ, have been converted into His death. You've been baptized, you've been immersed into His death. Okay, and think about it. We share in the death of Christ if you're a believer in Christ. There's a sharing that takes place. And you say, well, how does that take place? I don't know. But I say the question to you though. How is it that God punished Christ in your place? How is it now that, that God looks upon you as if you were Jesus? It's called imputation. And that's what's taking place here. Somehow experiencing this baptism into Christ, we've baptized into His death. And look at verse 4. This is where we get to the burial. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death. Right? We have been buried with Him. Everything I was mentioning here about the body of Jesus being taken down from the cross, being carried by Joseph Arimathea and by Nicodemus and putting into the tomb. If you're a believer in Christ today, you actually were buried with Him as well. Is that hard to understand? <laughs> yes. I'm just saying what the Bible says. There, there is a, a connection between our, our life and our faith and being buried with Christ. But the purpose of this, okay, look. We've been buried in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in the newness of life. Right? Just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we also who were buried were raised up with Him as well. That we might walk in newness of life means walking in righteousness, means walking in holiness. It doesn't mean to be flippant about sin. It means to take great close attention to our sin. James Montgomery Boyce writes in his commentary, I think a good comment on this. He said, I suggest the reason burial is an important step even beyond death, is that burial puts the deceased person out of this world permanently. A corpse is dead to life, but in a sense, it is still in life as long as it's around. When it's buried, when it's placed in the ground and covered with earth, it is removed from the sphere of this life permanently. It is gone. That is why Paul who wanted to emphasize the finality of being removed from the rule of sin and death, emphasizes it. He's repeating, but also intensifying what he says about our death to sin earlier. He says, you have not only died to it, he says, you have been buried to it. To go back to sin once you have been joined to Christ is like digging up a dead body. That's the significance of the burial of Christ. The burial of Christ is mentioned only one more time. It's in Colossians 2. Turn over there. The only time in all of Scripture the burial of Christ is mentioned is in these three passages. <clears throat> Acts 15, or 1 Corinthians 15, 
Romans chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 2. Again, tying it with our conversion, tying it with our, our baptism. He says, verse 11 of Colossians 2, In Him you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Okay, so he's not talking about physical circumcision. He's talking about metaphorical circumcision. Right? Some circumcision made without hands. Right? It's a, it's a cleanliness. It's a purity thing. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Right? In removing your flesh, your sin nature by the crucifixion of Christ. And here comes circumcision of Christ. Here comes verse 12. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith, in the working of God erased him from the dead. There is a sense where we join as believers in the burial of Christ and in the resurrection of Christ and it always ought to spur us on to love and obedience and righteous living. I mean, that is, that is the point. You are dead, verse 13, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He's made you alive together with Him. Have forgiven us our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which is hostile to us, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And there again, it was nailed to the cross. Our sins were. And so everything that we talk about, about Christ here, is that we as believers in Christ were there 2,000 years ago. The mystery is great. Okay? And delve upon this and think upon this and meditate on it. I'm not sure how to make it more clear. I need to work in days to come to make this more clear. But we join in the burial of Christ. And in fact, that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? Because we think about Christ and the cross and everything that He has done. And even now, we think particularly today about His burial and about how our sins have been buried with Him that we might walk in newness of life. And so as we think about celebrating the Lord's Supper, the the Bible tells us to examine ourselves before we do so. And I just simply say, are you walking in the newness of life? Do you know anything about a changed nature and changed desire and loving and obeying and pursuing God? Do you know that? In fact, Paul would even tell us in 1 Corinthians 11 that if we're going to take the bread and drink of the cup, they're mere representation of the body and blood of Christ. But if we take so, we need to take in a worthy manner. Right? There ought not to be right, hate among the brethren. There ought to be envy among the brethren. We ought to be walking in holiness and purity. He calls us to examine ourselves, test ourselves, and to see if we walk in a worthy manner. And so even right now, this is our custom, I ask you just to bow your head. Think about the cross of Christ